0: Welcome back to Across the Movie Aisle, presented by Bulwark Plus. I am your host, Sonny Bunch, culture editor of The Bulwark. I am joined, as always, by Alyssa Rosenberg of The Washington Post and Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today?
1: I'm just fine.
2: Happy to be talking about movies with friends.
0: First up in controversies and non palace intrigue, literally, kind of. Uh, that's right, folks, those wicked royals rightfully expelled from the American colonies centuries ago are back in the news. Apparently, Meghan Markle is sad about how they have treated her during her marriage to Prince Harry. I gotta be honest, I don't know anything about any of this. Uh, But I do know something about huge ratings and Oprah Winfrey's interview with Harry and Meghan did huge numbers. Overnights put the figure at 17 million, three times last week's figure in the same time slot, uh, and roughly three times the figure that the Golden Globes did uh, just last week. So big numbers, huge numbers, enormous numbers. Uh, Why does anyone care? Didn't we throw off the yoke of monarchial tyranny by stacking British bodies 10 feet high? Uh, What do people find intriguing about these inbred swine? I have no idea, but Alyssa does. Alyssa, what is going on with the royals?
1: There is a lot going on here. And while it's absolutely true that uh, throwing off the yoke of British tyranny was one of the best things that Americans have ever done, and certainly the last that all of us can agree upon, uh, one of the great things about it is that we get to treat the royal family as a soap opera that we don't have to pay for. Um, So we can watch all of this as sort of entertainment and social commentary without having any implication on our day-to-day lives or, you know, our understanding of ourselves as Britons or whatever. And um, Prince Harry's parents uh, provided a particularly dishy episode of this soap opera. The dissolution of Charles and Diana's marriage was, you know, tabloid gold on a score that, you know, even our current media culture can't quite contemplate. Um, and for a lot of people, especially including in the United States, Diana was a figure of sort of admiration and interest. She was considered to be more emotionally open than the rest of the family and have been unfairly treated. And to have sort of embraced an American confessional culture, most famously in an interview with Martin Bashir, in which she documented her own Challenges living in the House of Windsor um, and the dissolution of her marriage to Prince Charles, who's there, the, who was then and remains now the heir to the throne. Um, and after Diana's untimely death, um, people both in Britain and the United States have retained an enormous amount of affection for her sons, William and Harry, who were quite young when she died. And the dynamic between the boys has become very interesting and acquired sort of an. American twist when Harry who's sort of the younger not just the sort of s- the spare to the heir, but the sort of lightning rod the person who was both kind of more accessible um, and had more leeway but also who the you know the institutional royal family was always going to be willing to feed to the press uh, to protect his older brother Matt and eventually married uh, Meghan Markle a biracial American former actress um, she and- was on suits right yes yes rachel zane i think it was um, i was
0: i was watching uh, i'm just gonna interrupt here slightly i was watching horrible bosses randomly the other day because it was like on the front page of hbo max uh with my wife and she was like oh my god that's megan markle and i was like yes indeed it was she was playing literally like a ups delivery woman
2: was your wife like
0: yes queen <laughs> yes queen
1: Um, And to a certain extent, I mean, this really felt like a real life fairy tale for a lot of people, Um, although there is some debate over whether uh, George III's wife was biracial or black. Um, Meghan was the first non-white person to marry into the British royal family um, in modern times um she had this refresh modernizing approach she had been divorced she'd run this lifestyle blog she'd had a life independent of the institution that she was coming into which is not really something that can be said for william's wife uh the former catherine middleton who started dating him in college and they broke up briefly got back together i mean she sort of self-actualized into her role as queen in waiting but you know, Meghan was American. She promised to um, sort of revitalize a monarchy that has known not just for having a bunch of former colonies, but having members who faff around saying insensitive things about race. And for a lot of people who have seen Harry struggle in the wake of his mother's death, you know, there was this sort of added modern fairy tale element that in some ways he was sort of the damsel in distress who was getting rescued and getting whisked off to his fantasy of happiness by someone who could break him out of the sort of of a family life that he had found stultifying and that had cost him a lot in certain ways. And it really has not worked out that way. Um, Harry and Meghan uh, first stepped down as senior members of the royal family, which is this kind of arcane distinction. Um, but. Roughly means that you do certain you know, duties on behalf of the palace or supported at a certain level, um, and move first to Canada and then to um, the United States. And the split became sort of official and permanent this year. It was initially supposed to be a trial period, and you know the interview with Oprah, who um, is you know is doing a mental health series for Apple Plus, I believe, with Harry, uh, and who was a guest at their wedding. Um, You know, people didn't really know what was going to happen in it. It was clear that the couple was not happy, that they had, you know, sort of tea to spill in both the revolutionary and Black American parlance. Um, But the actual revelations were genuinely pretty newsmaking. I think the couple of things that landed hardest for people were... That Meghan had been so seriously depressed that she had asked for mental health treatment. Maybe my reading of it was that she had asked to enter inpatient mental health treatment because she was suicidal and had been told that that was not a possibility. Um, that the it had been broadly reported that she and Harry had decided not to have their son, Archie, take a royal title. And that was actually something that had been spun fairly favorably for them, that it was sort of a democratic... Uh, decision along the lines of what um, uh, Princess Anne did with her children with Mark Phillips, um, but it turns out that that you know they say that was not something that they wanted, and they were seriously concerned that he was not going to be granted the security that would be necessary to protect him given the level of racist threats, um, and that someone in the family uh, subsequently clarified not to be the queen or prince philip who has a history of racial faux pas um, had asked sort of how dark archie was going to be when he was born um, which is a question that's not just sort of racist but plays into very complicated politics of colorism um, that play out not just in the united states but in many of the commonwealth countries so this was the fairy tale blowing up on a scale that was in some ways even more dramatic than what Harry's mother had done in this Martin Bashir interview a generation earlier. Um, And it's, you know, like Diana, Harry and in particular Meghan are extremely adept at public relations. Um, They came into this interview prepared to give up a lot, but not everything. They were extremely polished and thoughtful. And as a soap opera, it was fascinating. And as sort of international incident, uh, even more potentially explosive.
0: Can I ask ask a question here? Because the sense I get from watching this again as an outsider who kind of nominally keeps up with this sort of thing is that whereas Diana was, I think, genuinely really, really loved by the public, people are much more split about Markle and Harry. I, I feel like Meghan and Harry have like, have not have not reached that same level of like oh my god so beloved or am i wrong am i am i misreading this i
1: think that there is i mean harry has been really really beloved in england um i mean he was so young when his mother died um that the nation became, in some ways, his collective parent, and I think Britons were willing to forgive him a lot. Even things like I mean, he was you know depicted naked at a party or in a you know Nazi in a Nazi, Nazi uniform. uniform. Yes,
0: wear so, a Nazi uniform to so a people, Halloween party. But there Not was cool.
1: definitely this sense that he was sort of this traumatized young person who had been abandoned in this kind of remote family, and so I think Britons were very attached to him, um, and I think genuinely invested in his happiness um, that said i think especially in the middle of Amer- you know an american reckoning with race it's easier to forget that britain is in some ways just as racist or not more i mean it's anyone you know,
0: has, who has ever been to a soccer game will back this up By the way. exactly
1: um, and so you know i think there was a strong desire for him to be happy in the united um uh, once he you know got serious with markle uh, but also, you know, and it's just absolutely crazy racist behavior by the British tabloids that uh, reflected a strain of racism in the British public. Um, and then I think that you know, Markle and Harry are probably more popular or more unambiguously popular in the United States, in part because there is this sort of fantasy of getting you know swept off by a British prince and getting you know whisked away from your mundane you know you know, of all our Republican American life. Um, And I think the sense that Meghan was treated in ways that were racist and hostile have um, made her more popular in the United States in the much in the same way that Diana's suffering was really important to her bond with the British, with the British people and the people and people around the world. Um, So I think that there is... There's just a difference, right? I mean, people in Britain—not all of them, but a lot of them—are invested in the monarchy surviving. And you know, if it—if the monarchy dies, what will happen for Americans is that we will lose a free soap opera and will continue to go to a bunch of nice historic properties. I mean, Netflix ever... could fund it, right? Yeah, it's
0: exactly. <laughs> they, 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 that's that's the, the actual to
2: solution the here <laughs> is that Netflix could fund both the Crown, the TV show. And the royals, the actual human beings, the, the family and the lineage take this out of taxpayer hands. Pri- this is what I'm saying. Privatize the monarchy <laughs>
1: yeah, and use th-
2: VC VC money to do it.
1: Yes. But I think um, the idea of folks talking out of school like this is a delicious spectacle in the United States. And again, in keeping with the idea of sort of confession and personal testimony as a form of activism. But in Britain, it's a more complicated thing. It is a, you know, it is going against an institution that people still very much care about and want to work.
0: Yeah, I uh, just on a on a technical level, what did you make of Oprah as interviewer? I know I know she you know, look, she's made herself a billionaire by being able to talk to people. And I'm I'm always kind of curious, uh, as as uh, just kind of an external observer, what it is that works so well about her her uh, technique.
1: I mean, I think I should say first that I think that the whole thing is slightly journalistically dubious, um, given her connection to the couple, and it's very much in keeping with an erosion um, in just sort of journalistic standards around celebrities, the number of magazine profiles that are, you know, celebrities interviewing each other or Beyonce just writing an issue of Vogue. But Oprah is amazing at this. Um, And I think that there are a couple of things that she does exceptionally well. Um, The first is that she comes back around to stories over and over while leaving people space to sort of finish saying what they're saying and have full reactions. So... You know, the the conversation that Megan and Harry talked about, uh, where a member of the family talked about Archie's potential color, was something that Megan brought up, that Oprah pushed her on. She sort of understood where the boundaries were and still managed to elicit, if not necessarily more detailed information about the conversation, about the impact that it had on them. And so, you know, she was not afraid to sort of come back to things while also still leaving space. Um... I also thought um, she was very good. She's very good at being sort of an audience surrogate, if that makes any sense. Um, you know, she, without saying like this is how you should react to something, um, you know, at moments when she seems genuinely surprised, again, that sort of what after the question about um, the conversation about, um, you know, the shade of Archie's skin, you know comes across as genuine in part because she's seen it all, even though it's probably a little bit stylistic. Um, and But it, it was also an interesting interview because, you know, Meghan Markle is clearly someone who knows how this game is played, right? I mean, it's very interesting that there's this sort of, op- there's this opening segment of the interview where she talks about just having done no research on Harry or his family, having prepared herself for royal life in no way, not even having the sense that she was supposed to do curtsy to Harry's grandmother, Queen Elizabeth II, uh, or even knowing how to do it when they first met. And that's a very canny thing, right? I'm not sure I believe it for a second. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but at the same time, it's admitting a foible that sort of sets you up to be more sympathetic, right? It's It was... And Oprah, without sort of fully debunking that, kind of managed to you know it was a very it was a good match of interviewer and interviewee. um and I thought that made it very effective.
0: Uh, my my question on that when I when I heard that that she had you know she hadn't you know done any research into Harry I, was was first a little bit incredulous but also like doesn't the royal family actually have people who teach people how to do this sort of thing before the meeting with the Queen is it doesn't Harry have like a you know uh, like a fairy godmother who comes <laughs> in and says we're gonna teach you how to do the curtsies and then there's a bibbity bobbity boo and then. It's well, all over.
1: Well, so fascinatingly and really sadly, Harry has talked about not wanting history to repeat itself, by which he means he doesn't want his wife to die in a uh, car after a car crash in a Paris tunnel. Um, but the extent to which everything that's happening here is repeated sort of detail for detail, um, Diana actually sort of famously complained about not having gotten help from the palace when, in fact, there were a bunch of people assigned to help and work with her. She had a really good private secretary. Um, there, she actually got a lot of resources. She didn't necessarily have the emotional support that she wanted from her new family, but professionally, um, she had a lot of support. Um, whether there's someone that teaches you that stuff when you're just dating someone, I think is largely not the case. Um, I think it is, uh, let me put it this way. My husband did a lot more to prepare me to meet his family than Harry appears to have done with Meghan. Um, <laughs> And sort of staff work aside there, one of the interesting things about the interview is like, how do you, how do you be a good spouse under these circumstances? You would think that one of the things you do is prep your serious girlfriend to meet the Queen of England. But, you know, there was, there was also a very revealing part of the conversation where Oprah asked Harry if he had advocated on Megan's behalf for her to get more intensive mental health care and she just basically said, no, we don't do that in my family. Um and I thought that was actually, you know, it's revealing about the coldness of the family, but it's revealing about Harry too. I mean, if you think your wife is gonna kill herself, um, you know, and if she is literally saying on national television, I didn't want to be alive anymore. I would hope that my husband would go to people and say, no, actually, this is serious. Also, it will be worse for you if there's a dead duchess. Um,
0: (laughs) At the very least.
1: (laughs) but Well, considering that that's what the family appears to respond to, that may have been what it took. Um, So, yeah, it's I mean, I think it's hard to underestimate just how weird all of this is. This family, this institution, Tina Brown has described the you know the world that prince charles lives in is effectively being planet zog right like this is, you know william and harry grew up with a father who doesn't roll out his own toothpaste like there's literally like a special yeah. key that's like affixed to his toothpaste tube to roll it out for him and so He's i don't prince hakim
0: know... <laughs> basically we won't. Who we will come to in a moment. Yes. Who we will come to in a moment. Um, all right. Uh, good segment, Peter. Uh, thank you for, for all your contributions. Uh, no, I, I, I think this is, I look, I, again, I am, uh, well, let's let's get to the bit here. Uh, do, what do we think? Is it a controversy or a non-troversy that people care about this desiccated hive of backwards looking romanticism? Uh, Peter.
2: I think it is telling that uh, Harry and Meghan clearly hold much more interest for Americans, than the Golden Globes do, and the Golden Globes. This is actually a, like a, a point that is worth going back to a little bit, just because the Golden Globes are supposed to be where we see real, raw celebrities, right? They're drunk, they're having fun. This is this is who they really are as people, right? And nobody cared this year. Um, instead, we get this sort of confessional, memoirish, kind of deeply personal interview, and it to- it's totally gripping. In part because they managed to actually have I don't know if I want to quite say be deeply relevant to people's lives but have sort of relevant messages and and I like put ideas in play in a way that Golden Globes and Hollywood hasn't figured out how to do. So um I think it's I don't know it's controversial non-controversial it's it's important people care
1: it about is it. what
0: it is. It is. What, uh, Alyssa, what do you think? Controversy or non troversy that, that people care,
1: controversial. That people care, non-controversial. It's free entertainment, and it reminds us why it's good to be free. Um, in terms of what Harry and Meghan are going through, and I should note the sort of conservative uh, effort in America to brand Meghan as some sort of like racial grievance grifter is really strange and controversial.
0: Hmm. We didn't. We didn't talk about that at all. Uh, I. Uh, I. I would say it's a controversy because people. People can like whatever they like. Um, I do think it's a controversy that the monarchy exists. Abolish it. Get rid of it forever. Uh, all right. Uh, if you enjoyed this show, and frankly, if you don't enjoy this show, I don't. I don't know what your problem is. Go. Go marry a royal. Uh, make sure to head over to atma.thebulwark.com where we'll have a bonus members-only episode about the best movie to watch for International Women's Day, which is today, Monday, the day we're taping this, and you're going to listen to it on Tuesday, but it's fine. Don't worry about it. Uh, I think we all know which movie Sonny is going to pick. It'd be a surprise blow if he chose anything else. Uh, But what do Alyssa and (laughs) Peter have on tap for us? We'll find out on that special episode. And now, on to the main event, Coming to America. That's T W U O, not T O America. Coming T O America. Technically, That's the it's original... the number two. Yeah, like uh, two. It's the right. Sesame Street. The, the numeral... Right, exactly. I'm try... I, I was to trying. You to by the I was number two. to phonetically two? spell it out. It's hard to do here in a in an oral situation. Uh, the 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 original coming T O to America is the original 1988 classic directed by John Landis and starring. Eddie Murphy as an African prince, Akeem, who travels to New York Bureau, Queens, to find a mate who will stimulate both his mind and his body. Needless to say, wacky hijinks ensue between Akeem and his body man, Semi, played by Arsenio Hall. Uh, coming to the number two... America is about Akim's effort to find his illegitimate son whose bloodline will be necessary to ensure the stability of Zamunda following the death of Akim's father. Uh, so Akim goes back to America but only for a little bit. Most of this movie takes place in Zamunda and that is I think where the movie falters. There's a bunch of places where this movie falters, but let's focus on this one just for a moment. Um, leave aside the fact that this sequel, like so many comic sequels, just does the same but more, relying entirely on callbacks for the humor. Um, the problem with coming to the number two America is that Zamunda isn't as funny as Queens. I like I, I don't know any other way to put it. Zamunda is just not as funny as Queens. Um, and I don't know if they were afraid of making an African nation seem ridiculous or uh, if there, the, there was simply no place on Earth that it was as ridiculous as New York City in the 1980s it's hard to say but this is just not uh this is not a really good setting for a fish out of water comedy um the one real bright spot from my pov was wesley snipes a swaggering general who uh, rules next the, the the next door nation of next doria amusingly titled uh it's been fun to watch him reemerge as a real comic where would you say that next doria years.
2: is located vis-a-vis the the main uh, country one block
0: one <laughs> block over yeah uh it, i i have really enjoyed watching wesley snipes these last few years uh it, first in dolomite is my name and now in this um he's deeply funny he's deeply fun to watch he's got this great kind of physically exaggerated comic presence um and and he's just he's just always kind of fun to be around uh but i don't i don't know the rest of this movie doesn't quite work for me peter uh, is the problem with this movie as simple as its lack of john landis
2: well i think that's part of it um i i really did not like the sequel And I watched the first one uh, all the way through for the first time ever this week and just loved it. I found it utterly delightful and uh, sort of goofily charming and and super clever. And in part because what it does is it makes is it ensures that every character plays every single scene perfectly straight. Coming to America, the first one, the one without the numeral, is a movie that has no jokes, qua jokes. Now, I mean, it's a very funny movie, and there's a lot of things that are intent, that are set up as as humorous, right? But it's all contextual, and it's all character-based. It's all weird people doing things that are just slightly exaggerated, not exactly realistic. I'm not arguing that it's natural in some sense. But they're just slightly exaggerated oddballs, and they all kind of come together and bump heads. And it is just—it's the—it's the straight-facedness of every single scene combined with some really good pacing, um, just some kind of some smart gags, uh, a big budget that allowed them to do some some really nutty stuff. I mean, like the the number of animals that are just like hanging out in the background because it was the 1980s, and you couldn't make a a cg elephant so john landis and eddie murphy making a movie with one of the biggest stars on the planet had access to a huge budget they were like let's just put some elephants behind us we'll have them walk back and forth whole lot of elephants
0: we'll make one babar joke and that'll make it worth it
2: and it's great it's great because it's it it's so committed to the bit and the sequel kind of isn't committed to the bit it's just committed to the joke in the moment and there's so much so much showboating so much sort of campy vamping right um there's just all these there's all these jokes all this wink wink nudge nudge let's sort of throw our elbow at the audience and hey isn't this funny and it's not quite fourth wall breaking um but it is knowing right it sort of it jokes along with the audience um, and one you of the ways that it does is that it it assumes all this knowledge of the first film and is, is, you know, riffs on that first film so heavily. But none of the new characters seem like characters, right? They're just sort of goofy. I, I don't know. They're just uh, they seem well, like you comedians do, playing characters.
0: Do you, do you not think that the Coming to America, the original T.O. America, uh, had similar moments of this i mean there's the moment where eddie murphy tells his bride to be to bark like a dog and she barks like a dog and he literally looks at the camera and like it's not it it, it, like i i don't i i i question i question your read on the first film just the in terms of the straightness it's that's uh, that is the the probably
2: the best example for um for well, fourth also, wall breaking, um, so there's there's also but,
0: there's also I mean my favorite my like weirdly my favorite moment from the first one which I uh, also uh, watched this this week in preparation for the movie, um, not for the first time but but watched again was it's there's there's a there's a there's a shot where. Uh, Eddie Murphy and Arsenio Hall go into this apartment that they're going to rent. Yeah, I know what you're about to and say. And there's and there's the dog. there's an out there's an outline, there's like a body outline. They're like this guy was brutally murdered and and then the Frankie Vizan who plays the the landlord is like it's a shame what they did to that dog and there's just a cut to the chalk outline of the dog, which is, like, so absurd. Like, dog, you can't kill a dog, but they don't kill the dog. You just see the, the results of it. The- and, and, like, that's so obviously absurd and silly and, like, almost airplane-esque. It's I, I question. But, it, but
2: again, it's sort of seems to flow naturally from the world and if you think about the training sequence um for wesley snipes troops where like they're using shake weights and playing ddr and it's just sort of like again just kind of these random jokes that yeah. don't no i agree that don't I agree. flow naturally from anything other than let's be weird let's right like let's and there's way too much of that. And the Eddie Murphy, excuse me, the uh, the Wesley Snipes stuff, I, I agree, is the best stuff in the movie. But I just don't I just don't think the sequel works at all. It's well, nearly unwatchable.
1: And you guys are ignoring part of what makes the first movie great and the second one not good at all, which is that they're both romantic comedies. Yeah. And the first one is an outstanding romantic comedy. And yeah. the second one is a total dud of a romantic comedy. Um, and part of what works in the first one is that both Akeem and Lisa are like really developed people in a lot of ways, right? I mean, Akeem is kind of naive and he's like, you know, he's a fish out of water. He's enthusiastic about everything, but he has this interesting sort of perfectionist streak. Both movies, despite some jokes sort of at the expense of women, are very invested in the idea that a good romantic partnership is a marriage of equals, right? Like people who can, you know, your ideal wife is not the person who's super hot, but who is compatible with you in some fundamental way. That... Being pleased rather than challenged is actually kind of boring. He wants a
2: wife who is uh, intellectually stimulating.
1: Exactly. And so in the first movie, you have an actual courtship. And that's what a lot of the movie is about, right? I mean, you get... The fun barbershop scenes in part because akim is like going to these older black american guys to try and figure out how to court lisa he you have the funny stuff of him being sort of the third wheel on the date or you know trying to ingratiate himself as like the you know the mopping up boy at mcdowell's and mcdowell's is like a pretty good joke they should not have returned to it it doesn't work uh john amos is great just as a human being but does not work at all. I mean, context, it
2: gives them yeah. one of the better scenes in the movie, which is that uh, end of second act sort of moment where he's, where the uh, he and the McDowell's guy are talking, talking. in the kitchen, yes. right? And it's it's a it's not he- exactly hilarious, but it's it's feels like a moment from a better film that actually focused on some of the original characters rather than just kind of bringing them back as callbacks, saying, "Hey, you remember when that was funny before? If we show it to you again." Will you laugh another time, right? And and the movie just does so much of this kind of repeating bits without yeah. expanding on them.
1: Yeah. And again, in the first movie, you know, Lisa is a very specific archetype of a desirable black woman from the 80s, right? I mean, she's clearly educated, she's devoted to her family, um, she's serious about her relationship, she's socially conscious. Um, And again, she, you know, she feels like a specific person. You can see why she and Akeem fall for each other. You can also see why she's with this like cheese ball, jerry curl guy. Soul Glow. Great invention. Soul Glow. Um, <laughs> but in the second movie, you know, the, the young romantic leads just have none of that going on. And most of the movie is not actually devoted to their courtship, right? I mean, they sort of fall for each other in the middle of a bunch of other freneticness. and. It's just not a good romantic comedy, which well, is what makes the first thing work.
0: Right, right. I, I, as we're sitting here talking about its failure as a romantic comedy, a phrase occurs to me. This, this isn't a rom com. It's not a romantic comedy. What it is is an empowerment comedy, and it, it is it like it has these. It has the most predictable riffs that you could ever predict for a movie of this sort coming out at this time, right? like the the eldest daughter of Akeem, who is super good at martial arts and like great is is you know, perfectly ready and willing to lead the country, but she's not allowed because the law does not allow a woman to be queen, but it's like, all right, well, so by the end of the movie she's obviously going to be the queen of Zamuna. that's that's how this is going to, to work out. or the uh, the hairdresser who, you know, we learn, uh, halfway through the movie, she is not allowed to own her own hairdressing shop because women cannot own businesses in Zamunda. And it's like, okay, she's obviously going to be, you know, the the actual love interest of the man. The occupational the man licensing laws under. are terrible. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it just like it just it, like everything in this movie is so is so predictable. And look, the first one is relatively predictable as well. Though there's nothing there's nothing in this movie that's as kind of like. Oh, I didn't see that coming. As when uh, the uh, the sister, uh, Lisa's sister, in the first one uh, starts hitting on uh, uh, Akeem, shall we say, at the at the basketball game. Like I, I I remember, I I had totally forgotten about that scene and was watching it, and I was like, oh, that's that. You don't see that sort of thing in movies very much anymore. Um, I I just like it's so predictable and it's so and it's so the 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 humor is so focused on just. Reminding you of things that had happened in the previous movie, that I I was just bored,
1: the one, just yeah. bored. The one thing, there's one thing that I sort of wish that they had developed, which is there's this tiny little thread of a subplot in which Lisa Kim's wife um, ends up becoming friends with the one night stand who produced his illegitimate son, and there's actually something really interesting there, um, because you know part of the reason Coming to America is interesting is that it's this fantasy about totally unencumbered blackness, right? Like one of the things that's fascinating about watching it is that Akeem and Semi, when they get to America for the first time, are totally unencumbered, right? Like, they get a cab at the airport. They don't get hassled. Their stuff gets stolen, but it's because it's Queens in the 1980s. Um, They're, You know, they're existing in this largely Black world, but they also have grown up sort of free of the structures of what it means to be Black in America. And so it's really interesting to see Lisa, like, actually who – grew up black in America and has become a literal African queen kind of have this hankering for the argot and behavior and sort of sisterly performance of black women in America. Um, And I wish the movie had actually done something with that because it's it's a really interesting notion that the sort of the fantasy of Zamunda or Wakanda might not actually be a full replacement for the distinctness of black American culture, which even though it is defined by struggle, um, has so much that is rich and specific and sort of familial about it. Um, I thought that was sort of a missed opportunity. I mean,
2: that would require this movie to have ideas, yes, right? And, and and to the extent that it has ideas at all, it's just sort of uh, repeating sort of trite things that it, it needs to say because it's a movie in 2020, 2021, right? It's, it doesn't actually attempt to say anything complicated about race about uh you know power um about any of those things it just sort of tritely comments on them in the most predictable way um and it's and i i guess i would be okay with that if it were funny but it's not and and it's it's so poorly paced um it's just right it it kind of especially in the middle as you said sonny uh when they get back to zamunda the movie just falls apart it's it was it's not great before then But it really just bogs down. Um, And I think, you know, another thing that I actually want to ask you guys about, what did you make of the musical sequences, which just seemed like kind of disasters to me and kind of terrible ideas to the point where I couldn't even come up with a rationale for putting them in the film?
0: Well, the rationale is that they were in the first one and they're, they're, they're in the first one. You have the big like wedding procession sequences and the, you know, the big introductions of the visiting dignitaries and like those go on forever in the original. And again, I uh, watching it again for the first time in a while this weekend, I was like, God, these, these really do kind of go on, but at least they're like well shot and they're kind of like big, you know, productions. And in this movie, they just, they they're just kind of there. And it, yeah.
2: I mean, I in, in in the first one, and we were talking about this, um, uh, you know, on our in our G chat uh, beforehand. Uh, a little bit of a behind the scenes there for folks um, is just that
0: we uh, still use G. Yeah, uh, we do not. We're old um, at, across the movie. No, uh,
2: is that the first one? Is it's quite slow um, compared to modern comedies, and the joke density is really quite low. But I think in the first one, the joke density, like it, it, it works because so many of the jokes land. And because even if the action is somewhat slow and sort of getting from joke to joke, each each one of those gags is really nicely sort of imagined and thought, right? Like they spent time on it and and it, they're just like methodically and like pointedly moving from gag to gag to gag um, in a way that I think that the new one, it's it just sort of feels like it's, it's flailing. It's, it doesn't have an idea about what the central joke, like the... The point of 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 funniness right um is in any individual scene and it so it's just sort of throw stuff up up against the wall and it just it just doesn't work at all
0: yeah no it's not it's not good uh certainly i i, I might i wonder if the biggest problem is is just that it does not have eddie murphy and arsenio hall on screen for 90 percent of the movie i mean there are large there are yeah. large stretches of the movie where they're just they're just and the the whole thing, the whole first one is really driven by really Eddie Murphy. But like but Eddie Murphy and, and his relationship with with uh, with his body man, you know, his his uh, his man about town. And I, I like I, I there there is just no relationship in this movie that is nearly as humorous just on a back and forth. Uh, fundamental level as as this one is. It, it's it, it, I don't know. It 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 nothing nothing about it works. Well, it's we a should shame. and we
1: should spare a moment to talk about the greatness of Eddie Murphy, who, you know, I think has an artistic project that is in a lot of ways just radically out of step with what mainstream American cinema has become. Um, you know, he is trying to be Peter Sellers. He is invested in these sort of broad characters. Um, But he is just such a wonderful actor. And, you know, you can watch Coming to America and just be infuriated. There aren't 20 years of him starring in Tom Hanks-style romantic comedies. You can be disappointed that he's not, you know, doing a Liam Neeson and making action movies that are, like, actually more interesting than anything Liam Neeson does. I mean, he is just a sui generous, great american artist he has a wonderful face he can do just so many things and man i just the alternate history where he continues to be one of the biggest stars and esteemed as one of his greatest actors is one i would prefer to live in i mean the first
2: coming to america was successful in part because it was such an interesting showcase for his range and and it was criticized at the time in some ways by people who thought that him playing Akeem, who's this relatively gentle and low key character, was uh, showed, showing too much restraint. But that was part of what made it funny, I thought, was that you could see in all of these other characters he was playing. The fact that that dude could just like ham it up with not with the best of them. He was the best of them. Right. There, yeah. There's like it's like him and Robin Williams and that's it. And uh, and he could just go for broke at any moment. And part of what makes Akeem funny is that he keeps not he's just always low key and like, okay, I'm going to get through whatever this weird scene is because I'm I'm chill. Um, And yeah, I mean, he's he really has just an incredible range that you don't see nearly as much here.
1: And if you if you've never watched it, I just highly, highly recommend uh, Bowfinger, a movie in which he stars with Steve Martin. It's about a sort of gonzo Hollywood production. I don't want to say more than that. Murphy plays both. He plays two roles. He is incredible in both of them. I just, I cannot recommend it enough. It's brilliant.
0: Yeah, Bowfinger is great. I mean, I, I do think there is a, uh, I, I, I think there, it is worth pondering. And I, I've i read this before in interviews with him that I don't think he wanted to be that giant, enormous actorly movie star. I I feel like he's been very comfortable in in the life that he has chosen these last twenty years or so. And I think there's no, something fair. to be said for that.
1: I shouldn't project too much on his behalf.
0: Yeah. I I you know, look Good. Good for him. He made his money and he he can he can kind of do what he wants. And I, I think the, the projects he's been choosing these last few years now, again, uh, coming to America does not work. It's like an obvious cash grab. Somebody. So this movie was purchased by Amazon uh, video for, I think, one hundred twenty five million dollars. So God only knows how much it actually cost to make uh, for Paramount um but uh you know i i I do think that they're uh, i i think between this and and uh you know dolomite is my name i i would prefer more dolomites than cummings um all right uh so what do we think thumbs up or thumbs down on coming to the number two america thumbs
1: Thumbs down down.
0: (laughs) okay uh uh i will also go thumbs down sadly i i did not love it um That is it for today's show. If you loved it, make sure to check out our members-only episode recommending movies to watch for International Women's Day slash Women's History Month at atma.thebulwark.com. Make sure to tell your friends. A strong recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences, and if we don't grow, we'll die. And if you didn't love today's episode, please complain to me on Twitter at SunnyBunch. I'll convince you that it is, in fact, the best show in your podcast feed once again. See you guys next week.